Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 21, 2 Kings chapter 15. Well, it might surprise you to know that 2 Kings 14 and 15 are some of the most extensively covered minutely dissected chapters of the two books of Kings by Bible scholars and by historians. And there is more here to know and to understand than a casual reading of these passages might imply. So we're going to be in this chapter for a couple of weeks. And I touched on the reason for that last week. It is that right about here in our Bibles there is a turning point in redemption history and thus in world history which can be obscured by all the information that comes flying at us fast and furiously and it doesn't help that we also get bombarded with all of these strange Hebrew and Syrian and Assyrian names of kings names that are as difficult to pronounce as they are foreign to our ears In some cases, a particular king goes by two or three different names. In other cases, we have two separate kings who have the same name, ruling adjacent kingdoms at the same moment in time. In addition, we have a son and his father often sharing the rule of a kingdom, sometimes for several years, but the scriptural passages don't explicitly tell us that. And I want to state right now, that while it is helpful, there's no reasonable way for most Bible students to remember all of these names. To place them in a time or even a sequence. Or even necessarily connect them with the correct kingdom, at least for the first or even the second time, through studying this section of the Old Testament. Fortunately, there are charts. There are charts of these kings available as a study aid. I highly recommend that you keep one in front of you as we continue examining this time period. Otherwise, one gets overwhelmed and fixated on the names instead of seeing the overall picture of what is happening from both an earthly and a heavenly standpoint. As most Hebrew roots adherents are asked incessantly by skeptical traditional Christians why do we bother to stick our noses in such an irrelevant and obsolete section of the Bible as the book of Kings let alone the entirety of the all of the mostly unfathomable Old Testament the learned Jewish Christian scholar Alfred Edersham who had no idea that he would someday become the father of the Hebrew roots perspective of Bible study says this about that in his wonderful work Bible history of the Old Testament he says the history of the Old Testament in its progress to the New Testament is that of widening the idea of the servant of the Lord into that of the kingdom of God Lastly, its realization and completion is in the Christ and in the church of God. 
unless indeed the Old Testament had this higher meaning in unity, it could not possess any permanent or universal interest to Christians, except from a historical point of view. It would not permanently concern mankind, no, nor even Israel, at least in its present relation to the world. On the other hand, without it, the Old Testament, the New Testament would have no historical basis. And the historical Christ would only offer what would seem to be an absolutely unintelligible problem. See, what this learned and revered man is saying is that the only way to legitimately understand the New Testament is by first understanding the Old Testament. But if a Christian decides that the Old Testament is no more than a brief history of a vague and ancient people called the Israelites and offers nothing more important for a modern believer than it would if we studied the Incas or the Mayans, then the truth is that Jesus Christ, the man, his mission, and his divine purpose can't even be understood, let alone interpreted. He even goes so far as to explain that modern Jews would have little to gain by reading the Hebrew Bible about their earliest origins if the only purpose was history. Such a study might be interesting, even pleasurable. But beyond that, it would otherwise have no significance. And I would add that the very thing that Edersham was cautioning against is what has happened, especially over the past 300 years. For the average mainstream Christian today, the Old Testament is not only merely irrelevant history, it's nearly unintelligible. It's boring. Perhaps it's even a threat to our faith. Therefore, the church is taught to understand Christ as though he was a European. And to interpret and apply his message and his divine purpose based upon Roman church doctrine that has been adapted and modernized to fit Western culture rather than to see him through the true lens of the inherently Hebrew scriptures where exist the only prophecies there are about his advent and why his coming was so important to mankind. But as regards our study of the book of 2 Kings, first among the enormous changes that has arrived is that this long slide of Judah and Israel down the mountain of their rebellion and unfaithfulness toward Jehovah has now become a freefall. And this is especially so, for the moment at least, pertaining to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, some of that reality <clears throat> is reflected in this utter chaos of governance of these two kingdoms of the Hebrews. In the 13 years between the reigns of King Jeroboam II and King Uzziah, also known as King Azariah, no fewer than four kings took their turns on the throne, each one of them murdered by a successor. In chapter 15 alone, we are going to deal with the reigns of seven kings. Two kings of Judah, five kings of Israel. 
And while the stories are told in a condensed fashion here, there is some enlightening additional information in the book of Second Chronicles, and we're going to incorporate that information as we proceed. History is moving rapidly towards the exile of Israel first, and then a bit more than a century afterwards of Judah. Now a second significant change is the rise of Assyria as an undisputed superpower. Assyria was as much the driving dynamic of world events that every nation that was even remotely nearby paid close attention to as the United States was in the last half of the 20th century. Though we've not mentioned it up to now, even North Africa, Egypt in particular, was in Assyria's empire building plans and Egypt fully understood that. I can't stress it enough. Assyria broke all the historical paradigms of great kingdoms and hope for empires to this point in history. They redefined the notion of an empire. Certainly they had no knowledge of continents beyond Asia and Africa. To them that was the extent of the known world. But equally certain their intent was to dominate all that was the known world. So just as the modern world of the past 70 years has tended to generally ally itself with either the United States on the one side or Russia on the opposing side, the kingdoms and nations of Asia and North Africa tended to ally themselves with either Assyria or with a few other smaller kingdoms in an effort to try and fend off Assyrian aspirations. And Israel and Judah were squarely in Assyria's crosshairs during the time that we're now studying. And God would use that to exercise his judgment upon his people. Now a third change is more what I prefer to call a transformation. And it involves prophets and prophecy. Most of Israel's and Judah's kings had prophets assigned to bring God's oracles to them. And among the most famous ones were ones like Nathan, Nathan, David's primary prophet, Elijah, and Elisha. But notice that the only record we have of their prophecies and interactions with the kings is but a few sentences recorded among the books of the kings and of course in its parallel in Chronicles. Apparently, in the long lost documents that are constantly referred to in the books of kings, the documents usually translated into English as the annals of the kings of Judah and the annals of the kings of, of Israel, there were more, much more, recorded words of some of these prophets than are available to us today. But unless those are ever discovered, the books of Kings and Chronicles are all we know of those particular prophets. But now things transform. Suddenly, several prophets become far more significant in God's plan. And they even have their own named books that appears in our Bibles. In addition to warning the Hebrew people about the judgment that's coming and it's unlikely to be averted, and the explaining of why it is that God has finally retracted His holy hand of blessing and protection upon His people, 
And in some cases, they're advising the people what they ought to do now that exile is upon them. There's hope for a new and better future after the exiles. But most of the people living then will never get to see or enjoy that future. Although their descendants will have an opportunity to do so, provided they have contrite hearts. Thus, my job of teaching you about this period of time and your job of learning it becomes much more complicated. Up until the book of Kings, we could study one Bible book at a time and not have to look anywhere else. But upon the book of 2 Kings, we've had to intertwine the parallel books of the Chronicles. Now, starting with King Jeroboam II, we have to add the books of the prophets to the mix. Prophets such as Isaiah and Amos and Jonah and others. So be prepared to do a lot more scriptural reading and for us to have several detours into the books of these several prophets. There is much more important things going on than merely getting history right. This is about putting the writings of these familiar prophets into their proper context for correct understanding. And why is that so important for us? Because, as I mentioned a couple of lessons ago, all the prophecies concerning a Messiah and the end times were written during the era of the kings. So for a so-called New Testament believer to even hope to grasp what is intended by these end times prophecies that are all the rage today, beyond some fanciful and intended uh, dramatic and often wrong depictions of what our near future is probably going to be, the era of the kings attendant with their prophets, that's the key to unlock the treasure chest of knowledge that's there. So let's reread all of Kings 15 to get things started today. 2 Kings 15, page 418, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. It was in the 27th year of Jeroboam, Jeroboam, king of Israel, that Azariah, the son of Matziah, king of Judah, began his reign. He was 16 years old when he began to rule, and he ruled for 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Yekaolu from Yerushalayim, and he did what was right from Adonai's perspective, following the example of everything his father Amatzi had done. However, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and offered on the high places. Adonai struck the king so that he had Sarat until his dying day, so that he lived in a separate house, while Yotam, the king's son, ran the king's household and was regent over the people of the land. Other activities of Azariah and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. So Azariah slept with his ancestors, the kings of Israel, and they buried him with his ancestors in the city of David, and then Yotam, his son, took his place as king. It was in the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, that Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, began his reign over Israel in Shomeron, and he ruled for six months. 
He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, just as his ancestors had done, and he did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, who made Israel sin. Shalom, the son of Yabesh, formed a conspiracy against him, and he struck him in the presence of the people and killed him. Then he took his place as king. Other activities of Sakaria are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. And the word of Adonai, which he had spoken to Yehu, was your descendants down to the fourth generation will sit on the throne of Israel. And that's exactly what happened. Shalom, the son of Yavesh, began his reign in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah. He ruled in Shomron for only a month. Menachem, the son of Gadi, went up from Tirzah, came to Shomron, and struck Shalom, the son of Yavesh, in Shomron and killed him. Then he took his place as king. Other activities of Shalom and the conspiracy he formed are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. From Tirzah, Menachem attacked Tisah, all the people in it, its territory, because they had not opened their gates to him, so he sacked the city. He ripped apart its pregnant women. It was in the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, that Menachem, the son of Gadi, began his reign over Israel. He ruled ten years in Shomron. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. Throughout his life, he did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevad, who made Israel sin. Pool, the king of Asher, invaded the land. Menachem gave Pool 33 tons of silver so that he would confirm Menachem's hold on the kingdom. He did this by taxing the wealthy men in Israel. From each he required one and a quarter pounds of silver to give to the king of Asher. Then the king of Asher turned around and left the land. Other activities of Menachem and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. Menachem slept with his ancestors and Pekhiah, his son, took his place as king. It was in the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, that Pekhiah, the son of Menachem, began his reign over Israel in Shomron, and he ruled for two years. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, who made Israel sin. Pekah, the son of Ramalio, one of his commanders, conspired against him. With Argov, Arye, and 50 men from Gilead, he assassinated him in the palace stronghold in Samaria. And after killing him, he took his place as king. Other activities of Pekhiah and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. It was in the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, that Pekhiah, the son of Ramalia, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and his reign lasted for 20 years. He did what was evil. From Adonai's perspective, he did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, who made Israel sin. And during the time of Pekhiah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Asher, came and conquered Ion, Avet ben Macha. Yanoch, Kadesh, Hatzor, Gilead, and the Galil, all the land of Naphtali, and took them captive to Asher. Hosea, the son of Elah, conspired against Pekach, the son of Ramalia, and struck him and killed him and took his place as king in the twentieth year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Other activities of Pekach and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. It was in the second year of Pekach, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, that Yotam, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began his reign. He was 25 years old when he began his reign, and he ruled for 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Yerusha, the daughter of Sadok. He did what was right from Adonai's perspective, following the example of everything his father Uzziah had done. However, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and offered up on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of Adonai. Other activities of Yotam and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. It was during this period that Adonai began sending against Judah Retzin, the king of Aram, and Pekach, the son of Ramalia. 
Jotham slept with his ancestors and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. Then Ahaz, his son, took his place as king. We are told that in the 27th year of King Jeroboam of Israel's reign, that the son of King Amaziah of Judah came into power at the tender age of 16 years old. Now, I'm not going to spend much time with it, but it could not have been the 27th year that it happened, and it has to be a copyist error. The confusion comes, and that King Amaziah and then his son Azariah, by the way, who's alternately called Uziah, were co-regents for an extended period of time before Amatsia died and the throne was left exclusively in his son Azariah's hands. It's believed that Azariah and his father reigned together for 13 years. So it was actually that Azariah started the co-regent aspect of his kingship at 16 years old in the 14th or 15th year of Jeroboam of Israel's reign. When Azariah started ruling on his own, he was probably 29 or 30 years old. Thus in verse 2, the 52 years that he reigned consisted of about 13 years as a co-regent with his father and then 38 or 39 years thereafter. And on a timeline, he began to rule with his father about 785 B.C. and then he died about 733 B.C. Now, Azariah was actually considered a generally righteous king in God's eyes. Except that, just like his father, he didn't do anything to actively stop the people of Judah from using their own family bamot, high places, to do their sacrificing upon. It needs to be said that we have been reading about this issue of Judahites using their own high places for sacrifice for many chapters now. And it had become so ingrained in their culture that no doubt the thought of giving it up was considered pure heresy. The use of Bamot was untouchable. So we don't even hear of the priesthood protesting against it anymore. Over and over, God makes it clear this is wrong in His eyes. It's sin. It's directly against His Torah law. There is to be but one place for all Israel to sacrifice, and that's the brazen altar in Jerusalem. Yet, He doesn't seem to take any identifiable direct action against the people for this. This ought to be well noted as part of God's character. His people aren't punished for every sin, at least not in this life and not on this earth. But those sins are not overlooked. They're not forgotten by the Lord. So we should soberly grasp that the indication that what we are doing must be right in God's eyes is not the absence of punishment. Just because we can't see a punishment reasonably attached to it does not mean that we're doing right. I'm not going to list the many troubling observances and icons and doctrines that modern Christianity has adopted that are clearly outlawed by Holy Scripture, but some of them have become the heart of Christian worship and tradition in modern, modern times. Things that for anyone to even suggest might be wrong 
and thus done away with are met with everything from an eye roll to condescending amusement to downright anger. But I think you know what these things are. Just as the Hebrews full well knew what they were doing was not right in God's eyes according to his Torah. But they did it anyway because everybody else did it. It was so pleasant. It was so accepted. It was so much a part of their culture. It seemed so benign to them. And in some strange way, some of these things even became a sign of their Hebrew religion. So to change any of that was just unthinkable. Now verse 5 gives us a rather brief and cryptic remark about how Azariah's reign tragically ended and thus how his son Yotam, Jotham, came into power. It's interesting that we find no special deeds or accomplishments attached to Azariah's reign in 2 Kings 15. But, when we go to Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 26, we get some additional information. So, let's go there now. Open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And we are going to read the first 15 verses of it. Page 1209 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Second Chronicles chapter 26 starting at verse 1. Meanwhile, all the people of Judah had taken Uzziah, remember, he's also known as Azariah, at the age of 16 and made him king in place of his father, Amaziah. He recovered a lot for Judah and he rebuilt it. It was after this that the king, Amaziah, slept with his ancestors. Again, that's another name for that same person. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began his reign and he ruled for 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Yochilau from Jerusalem, and he did what was right from Adonai's perspective following the example of everything his father Amaziah had done. He consulted God during the lifetime of Zechariah who understood visions of God and as long as he consulted Adonai God gave him great success. And he went out to fight the Philistines, breaking down the walls of Gath, Yabne, and Ashdod. And he built cities in the area of Ashdod and among the Philistines. And God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabs living in Gur Baal and against the Meunim. The Ammonim, the Ammonites, brought tribute to Uziel and his fame spread abroad as far as the Egyptian frontier since he kept growing stronger. Uziel built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, and at the angle, and he fortified them. He built towers in the desert. He dug many cisterns because he had much livestock. Likewise in the Sheflah and in the coastal plain. He had farmers and vineyard workers in the hills and in the fertile lands because he loved the soil. Uziel had a standing army of fit soldiers divided into units according to the census taken by the secretary Ye'el and the officer Maya Yesha under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's officials. 
The total number of clan heads over these strong, brave men was 2,600. They directed a trained army of 307,500 fighting men. A strong force supporting the king in war against the enemy. Uziel equipped them, the whole army, with shields and spears and helmets and armor and bows and sling stones. And in Jerusalem he built devices designed by experts for the towers and the angles from which to shoot arrows and to lob large stones. His fame spread far and wide, for he was miraculously helped until he became strong. Now keep your finger in this page because we're going to come right back to it very shortly. Here we find that names Uziah and Uziel are substituted for the name Azariah. The only difference between Uziah and Uziel is that Uziah means God is my strength. Uziel means Yehovah is my strength. Why this substitution of names, we don't know. And we see that this king consulted God regarding his decisions and actions as long as Zechariah was living and counseling the king. Now, Zechariah is a little bit of a mystery. This is probably not the prophet Zechariah that the Bible book's named after, and it's not the Zechariah who succeeds King Jeroboam of Israel for a short time. It's another man that has the same name. And as long as King Uzziah was faithful to consult the Lord before he acted, the Lord gave the king great successes, and several of those successes are listed for us. He defeated the Philistines, and he attacked and captured the cities of Gath and Ashdod. Yes, that Ashdod. As well as Yabne. He defeated the Arabs. The kings of Ammon submitted to Uzziah as a vassal, and so they paid tribute to him. He expanded the walls of Jerusalem. He built more gates, more defensive towers to protect the gates. He had wells dug in the desert regions, but he also hired farm and vineyard workers to expand his own personal fields because he liked owning and farming the land. He built up a standing army, a full-time professional army. However, that was in addition to, to 307,000 militia that had gone through some formal field training, no doubt at the instruction of the, of the standing army. The militia was supplied with its weapons by the government, which was quite a shift from when these men had to supply their own weapons. The designs of the defenses for the city of Jerusalem were highly advanced, and as a result, all of these deeds and more caused his fame to spread far and wide. But as verse 15 makes it clear, it was not by his own intelligence or strength, but by the miraculous hand of God that these great achievements occurred, even though he was far from a perfect man, let alone a perfect king. Yet something happened to Uzziah later on in his reign. After a trusted advisor, Zechariah, died. Most Bibles say that he contracted leprosy. And he spent the rest of his days in a place of asylum, separated from everyone. In fact, it says that the Lord smote the king with this disease. 
But the disease was not leprosy. Rather, it was Zerat. And Zerat was always a divine punishment of a skin disease, but most definitely, it was not leprosy. And this is because Zerat's not some specific skin disease. It could have been any one of several. The idea was that the Lord was exposing a person's inner unclean condition by having him or her wear it on their outside. But what caused the Lord to give Uzziah Zerat? Again, we have to find our answer in the book of 2 Chronicles. So, let's get back to 2 Chronicles 26, and we're going to start reading at verse 16 and take it to the end. Back to page 1209 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Verse 16. But when he was strong, he became arrogant, which caused him to become corrupt. So that he sinned against Adonai his God by going into the temple of Adonai to burn incense at the incense altar. Azariel the Kohen went in after him, and with him were eighty of Adonai's Kohanim, brave men. They stood up to Uziel the king and they told him, This isn't your job, Uziel, to burn incense to Adonai. The job of burning incense belongs to the Kohanim, the descendants of Aaron who have been consecrated. Get out of this sanctuary. You have trespassed, and Adonai God will not honor you for this. This made Uziel angry as he stood there with a censer in his hand ready to burn incense. And in his anger at the Kohanim, the priests, Zarat broke out on his forehead right in front of the Kohanim in the house of Adonai beside the altar for incense. Azariel, the chief priest, high priest, and all the priests stared at him. There he was with Zarat on his forehead. Quickly they threw him out of there. And indeed he himself hurried to get out because Adonai had struck him. Uziel the king had Zarat until his dying day. He lived in a separate house because he had Zarat. He wasn't allowed into the house of Adonai. Meanwhile, Yotam the king's son ran the king's household and he was regent over the people of the land. Other activities of Uziel from beginning to end were recorded by Yeshayal, Isaiah, the prophet the son of Amotz. So Uziel slept with his ancestors and they buried him with his ancestors in the graveyard belonging to the kings because they said he had Zerat. Then Jotham his son took his place as king. So here we have it. As it happens to many of us at one time or another, God has favored us and caused wonderful and perhaps prosperous things to happen for us. But eventually, we stop praising Him for the blessing. And we decide it's our intelligence. It's our cunning. It's our hard work that's at the root of it. We become arrogant. And pretty soon, we step over some line in the sand the Lord has drawn and down we go. Uziah could be used as a good example of many fallen pastors whose success went to their heads. He was apparently a good and decent man who determined to follow God and to listen to Him and to do His work on earth on behalf of the Lord's kingdom. But he was uncommonly successful 
And as the adulation of the people grew, as his victories and accomplishments piled one on top of the other without loss, something happened in his heart. And he decided that he was privileged enough, unlike all others, to be able to depart from strict obedience to the Lord and to do whatever he felt was good. It seemed to him that the Lord's laws and commandments somehow no longer applied directly to him. He was the exception to every rule. And what he felt like doing was entering the holy temple and offering incense, something that was strictly reserved for Jehovah's priesthood. Now I hope you can picture this. This was not a man who woke up one morning and thought, I think I'm going to do something evil and wrong today. This was a man who had mistaken, had some mistaken unction deep down inside to do something very pious, highly spiritual, something special and unique. He felt so good about it all, so excited and very righteous. But it all turned out to be emotion and pride. We get the story of how, uh, how as he was doing this unauthorized act, inside a place he was specifically prohibited from ever entering, he was bravely and rightly confronted by the high priest Azariah. Interestingly, the high priest's name was essentially identical to the king's name, who told him that he had trespassed against God. And Uzziah, burning censer in his hand, became livid at the high priest. Now, who among us hasn't seen or heard of what up to now was a decent pastor or teacher or politician who suddenly began to do what was blatantly wrong and when taken to task for it, vehemently denies it and asks how anyone would dare to speak to him or her that way. Instantly, Surat broke out on the king's forehead, indicating where, from God's perspective, the blame lay. The words state that the high priest and the other priests who were with him there were startled, utterly speechless when it happened, and they couldn't stop staring at him. Quickly, the priests physically tossed this unclean king out of the temple. And all we know beyond that is that the Zerat never left him. And it meant that he would have to be segregated from his family and from everyone else until the Zerat went away. It never did. He could not live within the city walls. He could never again even visit the temple grounds. This meant his sins couldn't be atoned for. He would die an unclean sinner. From the penthouse to the outhouse, like they say, with one unguarded moment. But you know, it wasn't so much what he did as it was who he had become. Even though he had been able to hide it from everyone, including himself for quite some time. What a timeless lesson that is for all of us. Well, Second Chronicles 26.21 explains 
that it was because of this that Uzziah's son, Yotam, became co-regent with his father. King Uzziah did not give up his throne. Instead, his son, Jotham, became the visible and public part of the tandem. But we also have to take this into account when figuring Yotam's time on the throne. When the king died, he wasn't permitted burial in the royal burial caves of King David's family, even though he was a legitimate descendant of David. Rather, he was buried in the ground, we're told in a graveyard, set aside for royal family members. This is because he died with Zarat, meaning he died in an unclean state. Back to 2 Kings 15, in verse 8, Jeroboam II, king of Israel, dies. His son Zechariah replaces him. This occurred fairly late in the reign of King Uzziah of Judah, about 14 years before he died. But Zechariah lasted for only six months. He's described as being an evil king, behaving just like those who came before him. And as had become typical of all the kings of this northern kingdom, Zechariah's chief sin was the continuation of the golden calf cult. This resulted in the Lord not protecting the king, so he was murdered by Shalom, son of Yavesh. Now we're going to take one of our detours now and end today this way. And this is one that I spoke of about the beginning of today's lesson. You see, it was during this time that Hosea and Amos were prophesying. And so much is said in their books about the condition of Israel at this time. We can't bypass them. They fill in many blanks. They give us a lot of food for thought. So we're going to stop and read Hosea chapters 4 and 5 in one reading. Again, the entire context for what we're about to read takes place in the northern kingdom at the time of Zechariah and then Shalom. And this is precisely who Jehovah is addressing through Hosea. Open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 4, which is on page something or other, um, 710. 710. Hosea chapter 4. We're going to move right into 5. Hear the word of Adonai, people of Israel. For Adonai has a grievance against the inhabitants of the land. There's no truth. There's no faithful love or knowledge of God in the land, only swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds with one blood crime following another. Therefore the land mourns. Everyone living there languishes, wild animals too, the birds in the air. Even the fish in the sea are removed. But no one should quarrel or rebuke because your people are having to quarrel with the priests. Therefore you will stumble by day and the prophet will stumble with you at night. I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for want of knowledge because you reject knowledge. I will also reject you as Kohen, as priests for me. Because you forgot the Torah of your God, I will also forget your children. The more they increased in number, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and are greedy for their crimes, but the priests will fare no better than the people. I'll punish him for his ways and pay him back for his deeds. They will eat but not have enough and consort with whores but have no children. 
because they stopped listening to Adonai. Whoring and wine, both old and new, take away my people's wits. My people consult their piece of wood. Their diviner's wand speaks to them. For the spirit of whoring makes them err. They go off whoring, deserting their God. They sacrifice on the mountain peaks, offer incense on the hills, under oaks and poplars and pistachio trees, because they give good shade. Therefore your daughters behave like whores. Your daughters-in-law commit adultery. I won't punish your daughters when they act like whores, or your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery, because the men are themselves going off with whores and sacrificing with prostitutes. Yes, a people without understanding will come to ruin. If you, Israel, prostitute yourself, still Judah has no need to incur such guilt. Don't go to Gilgal or up to Bedovan. Don't swear as Adonai lives, for Israel is stubborn as a stubborn cow. Will Adonai now feed them like a lamb in a big pasture? Ephraim's joined to idols. Let him alone. When they finish carousing, they start their whoring. Their rulers deeply love dishonor. The wind will carry them off in its wings and their sacrifices bring them nothing but shame. Chapter 5. Hear this, priests. Pay attention, house of Israel. Listen, house of the king, for judgment is coming to you. You have become a snare for Mitzpah and a net spread on Tabor. The rebels have deepened their slaughter and I am rejected by all of them. I know Ephraim. Israel's not hidden from me. For now, Ephraim, you are a whore. Israel's defiled. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoring's in them, and they don't know Adonai. Israel's arrogance will testify in his face. Israel and Ephraim will stumble in their crimes. Judah, too, will stumble with them. With their flocks and herds, they'll go in search of Adonai. But they won't find him. He's withdrawn from them. They have betrayed Adonai by fathering foreign children. Now within the, the month, the invaders will devour the lands. Blow the shofar in Giba, a trumpet in Ramah. Sound an alarm at Beit Avon. Behind you, Benjamin. Ephraim will be laid waste when the day for punishment comes. I am announcing to the tribes of Israel what will surely happen. The leaders of Judah are men are like men who move boundary stones. I will pour out my fury upon them like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed by the judgment because he deliberately sought out futility. Therefore, I'm like a moth to Ephraim, like rottenness to the house of Judah. And when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, Ephraim went to Asher, sent envoys to a warring king. But he can't heal you. He can't cure your wound. For to Ephraim I'll be like a lion, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I'll tear them up and go away. I'll carry them off. No one will rescue. I will go and return to my place till they admit their guilt and search for me, seeking me eagerly in their distress. We're not going to spend much time with these passages of Oshan. I'm only going to comment briefly to end this, this session. Notice that Israel and Judah are addressed separately. Thus, when in chapter um, 15, the, the, the Kohanim, 
the priests are spoken of, it is referring to Hebrew priests, many of whom were Levites. They were part of the golden calf cult. Not the priests who served at Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. That's not who's being talked about. And further, the mention of Ephraim is essentially a synonym for Israel, the northern kingdom, since Ephraim was by now so dominant among all the northern tribes. God's accusation against Israel is that they have betrayed him. They turned their backs on him. They've refused his chastisement. They have consorted with foreigners and their false gods, even making alliances with these pagan nations and adopting their false gods for themselves. And finally, in the last two verses of Hosea 5, God says he's going to have them carried away. And they're going to stay gone from their land until they admit their guilt and he will allow no one to rescue them. We'll continue with this next time.